Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome to episode 27 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Main Man, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Main Man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. So I took a spontaneous off-the-cuff job there and invited everybody in the world to come by and hang out and get drunk and play music. And the word spread and pretty soon everybody was hanging out. Main Man worked with a very diverse range of clients that included Mick Ronson, Amanda Lear, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Danny Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Cindy Bullens, David Bowie and Lou Reed. I had the songs, they got involved in the arrangements. I'd come in and play the songs. Fun to work with people who have ideas. The LGBT plus community in the UK is celebrating people in all their rich diversity by raising awareness of and combating prejudices against the LGBT plus community with a month of activities by individuals or groups embracing LGBT plus history. Five decades ago, David Bowie became the figurehead for a generation of people campaigning for the freedom to celebrate their own self-actualization, redefining sexuality in the 70s. Bowie was not an activist in the traditional sense, but he helped give voice to disenfranchised subcultures in society. And when he stepped onto the stage as Ziggy Stardust in 1972, one of the world's greatest gay icons was born, and the rule books were forever rewritten. So for this episode, Main Man's founder Tony DeFries recalls the Main Man ethos of inclusiveness and how David became such a powerful force for the LGBT plus community. So in this discussion today, I want to go back to the 50s and the 60s. Now in, in the 50s, I was in the UK and I became aware of some very high profile trials that went on in the UK at that time against various members of the peerage, mostly young, but not all young. And these were members of the peerage who were accused of crimes that involved sexual activity between men. And of course, in the 1950s, this was a criminal offence, and previous to the 1950s, it had been a criminal offence, and had punished, for example, people like Oscar Wilde by sending him to prison for illegal conduct with another man. In the same way, these three candidates, one of whom was a peer of the realm, were prosecuted and found guilty of similar crimes. And this was most likely one of the last actual prosecutions in the UK, but it didn't remove the possibility 
of criminal prosecutions at any or every level of society for simply following what we have more recently and a more hopefully more open and educated society come to see as simply the norms, although they may vary wildly and widely, but these are norms of human sexual behaviour. And to isolate one particular form of sexual behaviour and make it criminal is clearly inappropriate and wrong. So this is a theme that many people have tried to address or have addressed. Writers, poets, artists, photographers, performers, historians, a large canvas of different people. And whereas the focus in the UK in the post-Victorian era and the early 20th century, was focused on men, and it was similarly focused in the United States on men. There's always been an underlying and very specific threat to women who, for some reason or another, choose not to follow society's dictate and the dictates of religion that say they must behave in a certain fashion, which represents only one aspect of their sexual being, and that all other aspects are supposed to be subdued or simply suppressed or not admitted. And this was an enormous problem for women in the UK, in America, in Europe, and largely globally in the 19th and 20th century, and it became very much more of a problem as women activists in the UK and in America began to come out against the idea that women and women could not be emotionally and sexually involved. So one of the early examples of this are two people in the US who were unknown at the time but have since become quite well-known, quite famous. Patti Smith, who was a poet, a writer, performer, and Robert Maplethorpe, who was a sometimes actor, photographer, particularly photographer, and also sometimes writer. But his pictures and his photographs have become arresting. Back in the 1960s, Patti and Robert were together, but not in the sense of together as boyfriend-girlfriend or husband-wife or any of the so-called norms of social interaction between a man and a woman, but rather as two co-conspirators, if you like, in trying to bring that topic and those topics to light. And Mablethorpe, especially in his photography, has since he's long deceased, but he's become quite well-known and even famous for being one of the first people to explore and express openly that particular side of human sexuality. So now back to UK and present day. Here we are in 2021, in February, and in the UK at least, the 
history of LGBT has been turned into a different acronym, whereas not with a Q at the end, but rather with a plus at the end, which I personally prefer because it is the way that we ought to consider the human aspect of sexuality, which is enormously diverse and various and can't be summed up and shouldn't be summed up in a single acronym, but is much better expressed as the larger acronym of that plus, which implies there is more. There is more than simply what we identify as lesbian or as bisexual or as gay or as transgender. It goes beyond that. It goes to a place where it's everything and all. And that is particularly important when looking at where we, where I, fit into this puzzle. This is a puzzle that today produces the acronym of the British Secret Service MI6, which was once MI5, and who knows what it was before that. It's been around forever. But MI6, just a few days ago, say, we apologise for the policy under which MI5 and MI6 operated for many, many, many years of discrimination against people of any different sexual choice or gender than was prescribed at that time. And this essentially says you have an intelligence service, a national, international, global intelligence service. It's the service of fiction. It's the service of fact with real spies. It's James Bond and his real predecessors. It's Ian Fleming, who really was part of MI6. All of that encompassed in an apology that comes at least a century too late, at a minimum, for discriminating against some of its most important, most successful, and people who risk their lives for a national security which essentially was willing to throw them away and is now posthumously saying we're sorry. Now this is similar to what Biden's done in America where he's reversed the Trump-induced and earlier, frankly, an earlier attitude that ruled out transgender folk being allowed to join the military, being punished for being in the military, being driven out of the military, in many cases being deprived of benefits that would have been otherwise available to them as serving members of the military and certainly not being able to receive under Trump any of the medical treatments and psychological treatments that were previously available to members of the military, regardless of their gender or sexual identity. Now, that 
is being reversed, which is a very good thing, and should have been maintained from the beginning, so that the world is slowly moving towards a more liberated, we hope, and more open approach to all forms of human behaviour. Civil rights and human rights are very much entangled in this particular space. I'm not an activist, and May Man weren't an activist entity, and David Bowie himself was never really an activist in this cause. But we all, myself and my associates at Mayman and my staff at Mayman all believed in freedom of expression, freedom of the ability to be whoever you wanted to be, and provided it didn't do harm to others to do whatever you wanted to do. And in many ways, beginning in the 1970s, David, who had previously been a free spirit, that's the 60s description, I think is a free spirit, someone who's willing to go wherever the path leads them, spiritually and sexually. He was already someone who was willing to be feminine, masculine, either or, or both. And so happy to describe himself as bisexual, and even happy to describe himself as gay, essentially someone who was open to human experiences, whether they were sexual, dramatic, romantic, etc. And he was in many ways that personification of someone who could be very, uh, say, romantically embracing of people. He was very good with boys and girls when he wanted to persuade them to do something or when he wanted to engage with them. And he was also very good at getting audiences to respond to that. This wasn't apparent when I first met David. It was became more apparent through his lyrics. And of course, it became apparent through, let's say, Nights at the Sombrero. But mostly it became apparent when he started to adopt a different persona in his performance. So that his Lauren Bacall stage of Hunky Dory, where he embraced the idea of wearing a dress, being a indeterminate sexual character, and finally coming out and saying, I'm gay, I'm bisexual. He was then embracing an audience. But when he became Ziggy and went on to a BBC television show, Top of the Pops, and he actually sang in full costume with full hair and makeup in his Ziggy character this marvellous song Starman and whilst he's singing it and Mick Ronson who's in full blonde makeup is next to him he puts his arm around Mick he drapes himself around Ronson's shoulders and he points his finger at the camera so he's pointing at whoever's watching And he sings that he picked up the phone and called you. And he emphasizes, I called you. 
and he's talking to that audience and he's basically saying to them, here's an alien being who's a regular person who's telling you it's okay to embrace your fellow man, your fellow person. Happens to be my gorgeous lead guitar player, but never mind that. I'm telling you, you can be yourself. Many, many people, ordinary people, writers, journalists, people who started bands, people who played in bands, who saw that moment have said, and these are people who were possibly eight years old, 12 years old, teenagers, that that 1970s moment was a turning point for them because they could then say, it's okay to feel the way I feel. It's okay to be the way I am and go off to the next school day or the next social event or the next thing that they had to do, but especially school, because it was very much about school-age boys and girls and be brave enough to go on being themselves, not to have to hide and pretend to be one of the boys if they weren't one of the boys. Now, of course, it probably made a lot of other people very nervous about somebody being on the BBC and actually behaving in a way that would suggest it's okay not to be one of the boys. But many of those older and often successful men were hiding the fact that they had the same feelings and were simply concealing them. And many other people who were still young but engaged in possibly high school sports or college sports or professional sports were shying away from the fact that they had locker room feelings that they didn't want to admit or even on-the-field feelings that they didn't want to admit. And some of them, of course, realised, OK, maybe it's OK to admit those feelings. He's on TV. He's saying, it's OK. If it's OK for him, why not for me? As we moved on with David's performances, he then, without actually rehearsing it, but largely on an inspiration, he decided at a performance in the UK that he would play a guitar with his teeth. This wasn't unprecedented because Hendrix used to play a guitar with his teeth, for example. It wasn't a remarkable event. David put an entirely different spin on it. He played Ronson's guitar, Ronson's blonde Gibson with his teeth, which meant kneeling in front of Ronson, wrapping his hands around Ronson's thighs and playing out the tune that Ronson was playing with his teeth while Ronson carried on playing it. Fortunately, Mick Rock, who was at that concert, got a picture of that happening the very first time it happened, rushed to show it to me when I saw it, I immediately asked my staff to find out if we could get it into the next edition of a major music paper. And they said, no, it was too late. And so as an alternative to being able to put it into that edition, I bought a full page of advertising and put it in that edition 
because the advertising deadline runs beyond the press deadline. And, of course, it was a sensation, an absolute sensation. Nobody had done that before. It was a first. And, of course, it reinforced the idea that David was going to do stuff that nobody else was doing or had done and, again, pushed the limits of what people could expect. Sometime after that, we did a first engagement, and it was one of, I think, three or four, at the Rainbow Theatre. This was an old theatre, actually. It was a real theatre at one point in time in Finsbury Park, North London. And it had been converted into a cinema, and then it was acquired by some friends of mine, um, Terry Ellis and Chris Wright, who had Chrysalis, by that time Chrysalis Records, I think, as well as Chrysalis Music. And when I heard that they'd acquired it, I asked them if we could, A, use it for rehearsing for a week, because it hadn't yet been turned into a rock venue, and put David on in a show that we would prepare for and rehearse for using their stage because they had all the stage facilities of a theatre but bringing in and building sets and other things that we needed and sound and lighting obviously. That became the Bowie at the Rainbow concerts and when we opened our first night we had an audience that included of course Elton John and Mick Jagger and Alice Cooper and Mark Bolan and many, many other rock celebrities who'd come to see what was going on. We also had, and we did get some footage of this, I think Mick Rock again took some footage of this, a huge number, more than we could accommodate actually, of young people arriving Boys with their fingernails painted black or red or green or whatever other colour they fancied, with makeup on. Boys who were in costumes as close as they could get to Bowie's costume or in the costumes that he'd worn in other instances. Nobody knew what they were going to see, but it was very obvious that the impact that David already had on his audience went far beyond the simple audience but became literally look-alike Angela's and look-alike David's dressed in as exact replicas. In fact, we picked the best look-alike pair and got them to pose with David and Angela, the real David and Angela, after the event. And those photographs are somewhere, who knows where. Somewhere in our archives we have. <laughs> What's really important about this is the show went on for many days. Many people came. Many celebrities came back for a second and third look. What did we do? We had a scaffold set, which was literally the sort of scaffold you see on a building site, made up of building site materials. The steel poles, the steel clamps, the boards that you'd normally use to put up when you were doing work on a new building or an old building, and you could walk along them. And then we covered them with glitter so that they would reflect and sparkle all the light. 
And then we, of course, had the spiders on stage in very glittery costumes and makeup, and David himself in a, in a Ziggy type costume with various changes. But what else did we have on stage? We had Lindsay Kemp in a wonderful set of costumes, a full out, well known, famous mime who was clearly, entirely, and absolutely a homosexual famous mime, and a troupe of dancers, boys and girls, and other mimes supporting him. And one of them was a very large, bald performer called Jack, who was Lindsay's partner, and who was also blind. The audience were very accepting of this show, which now was full of effeminate characters and it was very in a way for a rock and roll show it was very arty it was literally arty as opposed to raw rock the time frame between these events was very short a matter of weeks between that finger pointing bowie saying to all of his viewers i phoned you and identifying directly with them as people he wanted to share this with, became then a dramatic coda on stage in that concert, which he repeated, of course, in later concerts, of going down on Ronson's guitar, effectively going down on Mick, but figuratively rather than actually. Again, a very daring, dangerous, edgy thing to do, which his fans adored and then to the rainbow which happens within weeks of the bbc showing and here is david on stage acknowledging that he's singing over the rainbow in the rainbow as starman loaded with theater and with a full troop of dancers and mime performers on an astonishing set when it was lit up properly lit, playing this same music, and of course the audience adored it. It harks back to a much earlier time when you had writers like Shakespeare and his peers unable to put girls on stage because under Elizabethan era rules, girls were not permitted to perform on stage, and especially not if the Queen was going to attend and Elizabeth did it, did attend many of Shakespeare's plays. But ultimately, there was a restriction. So when we look at what David's doing here, he's mixing what wouldn't have normally been either pantomime or theatre or mime with rock music, with songs from The Wizard of Oz, with Judy Garland with a performance that allows anything to happen, an audience that don't know what they're going to see next, but whatever it is, it's a surprise. And with these marvellous songs that essentially tell the audience that whoever you are, whoever you want to be, whoever you have been, and whoever you can be, you're all welcome here. You're all beloved here. 
And this was what really made David an icon for those audiences because this was not the message that embraced them from most rock stars. And for, to be embraced, to be given that sort of, you can do anything you want, and watch somebody doing that, actually not just saying it, not just singing it, but performing it, was an enormous uh, acceleration of their own feelings. Whatever their own feelings were, they were accelerated by this performance. And that's what you really want drama to do. You want drama to get the audience engaged and to leave the way you used to leave a really good movie, feeling elevated because you just watched something amazing. It's what you can do in theatre. And it's what you can now do, of course, in TV shows. And here's the impact that, although it wasn't necessarily the intent, but in the last 50 years or so, the idea that you can celebrate being different, that you can celebrate being anything you want, has come to be accepted and actually fervently embraced. So when a few weeks ago a very popular DJ, Scottish DJ called Sophie, accidentally died, there was an enormous outpouring of grief in the UK because she was very popular and she was also very open about and very devoted to the cause of promoting sexual diversity and sexual freedom. Other instances of that can be seen in the so-called Gay Pride History Month, which we're now in. This is February, and that is, in the UK at least, Gay Pride History Month, where celebrations are held all over the UK. Now, they'll probably have to be held virtually in many cases in the current climate, but they would normally be held as actual events. Maybe some of them still will be. And they're basically celebrations of the ability and the pride that you can take in being whoever you are, being able to be freely whoever you are and embracing all your fellow humans, whatever their sexual inclinations, whatever their romantic or personal attachments are without criticism, without divisiveness and without any form of hate. This hasn't happened yet worldwide, but it's hope that this will become a norm and a standard for the world. Tony DeFries describing how 50 years ago David Bowie and the Main Man team provided a soundtrack and visuals which reshaped the world by complementing a larger fight for acceptance and civil rights in the LGBT plus community that continues today. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are a part of an ever-growing archive of Main Man documents that include articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, DeFries explains how the Main Man team made their mark on America with the help of some LGBT plus icons. Yeah.
I'm Des Shaw. And this is Zinc Media MM Tech Production. Thanks for listening.